Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. At mercyships.org. That's Mercy without God's word, period. But the book of Psalms has uh, given us uh, a context for our joys, our sorrows, our angers, our doubts, and most of all, our thanksgivings. And David Taylor has written a book called Open and Afraid, the Psalms as a Guide to Life. He's my guest on the show today. David, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, I love the Psalms. I think everybody does. You too, huh? I do. I've loved them since... I've, really, I've loved them since Eugene Peterson introduced me to them when I was in seminary about uh, 20, 25 years ago. And you worked uh, with Eugene for quite a bit? Yes. Nice. Uh, in seminary, I took a few courses with him and then became friends subsequently. And, and then again, you know, was able to partner with him and, and Bono on, on that film in which they discussed the Psalms together. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me your motivation for Open and Unafraid. You know, after the film came out uh, about five years ago, I found myself reading more in the Psalms, books about the Psalms, talking to people about the Psalms, and I discovered there was a gap in the, the bookshelf, as it were. There were some really wonderful scholarly books, some really good daily devotionals, but not much in this middle space that would offer something meaty but accessible as an entry point into the Psalms. Mm-hmm. So when you think of the Psalms, and do you go to them daily? Do you go to them weekly? Tell me about your commitment to being in the Psalms. Well, when I was a child and in my younger years, I only approached the Psalms in piecemeal and occasional fashion. And it wasn't until later, uh, in my later 20s and 30s, that I discovered that I, I was in the minority position in church history. The, the church for 1,800, 1,900 years had made a habit of reading the Psalms on a regular basis, weekly, daily, monthly, mm-hmm. annually. And my church tradition made very little of the Psalms. And it was in a course with Eugene Peterson. I asked him a question at the end of, of the course, this marvelous course on, on biblical spirituality, uh, a vision for the Christian life that we might derive from, from Scripture. But he'd never given us any advice, uh, not one piece of advice. So I asked him on the last day of class if he had at least one thing he could suggest to us. And he suggested that we read a Psalm a day. And get to the end and start over. And that's what I did for several years. I would read one a day, 150 days, and then start back over. And I did that for a number of days, then took a break. And so I kind of, I, I come in and out of that, out of that habit of, of daily reading. So David, what did you learn about the history of Psalms? Well, the first thing I learned is that for, let's say, the first 1,500 years, it's almost the exclusive book that Christians are praying and singing. Mm. There, there, there aren't many other songs that are sung, maybe some of the canticles in Scripture, 
maybe an occasional hymn here and there, but it's largely both personal, family, and, and corporate worship. People are praying and reading the Psalms. And, uh, and, and then you have these different pockets in, in, say, the modern and contemporary era that make a great deal of the Psalms and other pockets or traditions less so. But you'll also find the Psalms all throughout uh, contemporary culture. You find it in movies and songs and uh, in, in poetry and in presidential addresses. It shows up all the time. And I think your timing on this book, David, is uh, quite good. And I think we're, uh, I think right now in our world, we are, um, need a book like this. And I would love to hear why you think this book is especially important, like right now. Well, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the Psalms are like a devotional antidote to our primordial sin, hmm. which was to hide from God and to run away. And then as it relates to one another, we shut each other out and, and shut down. And that the Psalms are given to us to help us to open up, to become vulnerable and honest and true and, and, and brutally realistic about the condition of our hearts, of our lives, of our society, of both the personal and the public. And things, it seems to me, are becoming more and more tense, more and more fraught, not just on the political landscape, but certainly on the healthcare landscape. This coronavirus is causing many people to become afraid and to wonder, is there a God in whom I can take refuge? Uh, is there a place for my fears? And the Psalms are this wonderfully realistic book that understands how broken our world is, and it offers us words and songs in order to name the things that we feel uh, in the deepest places of our hearts and to bring them out in the presence of God and bring them out into a space where we can be vulnerable with one another rather than hiding and turning each other into enemies. So I think it's it's an incredible resource that we could and should take advantage of in times when we are tempted to become our worst self and to imagine the least of one another. Now, that's beautifully stated, David. I really appreciate that response. I'm curious as to how studying Psalms and reading through them uh, on a re regular basis, how that has affected your prayer life. Well, one of the things I discovered when I stir first started reading Psalms regularly was that I had prior to that regular habit, I'd only seen certain things in the Psalms that I instinctually liked or uh, felt sympathetic to or that my church upbringing had told me to pay attention to. So Psalm 139 has mm -hmm. this wonderful, beautiful language about being known in our mother's womb and, and God's thoughts are precious to us. It's a beautiful song, but it ends <laughs> in a way that many, many church traditions actually avoid uh, reading. And it ends with sort of this very grim, dark enemy type language. But I think the reason why it is there on purpose is to help us reckon with the fact that wickedness happens not just out there, but wickedness happens in here, in our own interior lives. I think the other thing that I noticed 
is that the Psalms make space for both joy and sorrow to coexist in a way that our common experience or, or ideas of happiness just doesn't know what to make place, uh, what, what to do with or how to make space with lament and sorrow and grief. And we feel that it is a, a, a zero-sum gain. If I'm happy, I can't be sad. If I'm sad, I can't be happy. But the Psalms show us that our, our pilgrimage uh, here in this in this earthly sojourn uh, involves both sadness and joy, uh, mine and others, in a way that perhaps the Psalms might not only enable me to be present to these joys and sorrows that coexist in me personally, in my family life, in my work life, but enable to cultivate in me a true sympathy and empathy for others so that when I pray, say, Psalm 100, when I'm feeling great, but my neighbor is feeling sorrowful or has just lost his mother, I can extend sort of a sense of sympathy. Likewise, if I pray Psalm 51 when I'm feeling sorrowful, but my neighbor is feeling joyful, sort of this virtue or this habit in my heart space is able to hold many things together in a way that I think is often very difficult for us if we have not been trained in essentially the prayer book of Jesus, not just the prayer book of Israel. Mm, that's really, really interesting, David. Another emotion that we see in Psalms uh, is anger, and that gets aired out uh, regularly in the Psalms. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, you know, anger is a funny thing, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not funny at all. Uh, it's certainly not funny for me personally, because it's something that I have struggled with my whole life, and I've not known what to do with my angers. I think two things that the Psalms help me to understand are that anger is is a variation on the theme or a subspecies of lament. Anger is lament to the 10th power. It's sort of this acute experience of sorrow when we feel that harm or damage or loss of life is, is threatened upon us. Or when we see somebody we loved being threatened with a loss or uh, uh, of life or, or dehumanized experience. And so the Psalms offer us this kind of curse or imprecatory language, which is terrifying. And, and Bonhoeffer, the mid-century German uh, theologian and martyr, said we ought not to pray these Psalms unless we have reckoned seriously with the cross of Jesus. But they're there as many uh, careful students of the Psalms would remind us in order to rescue us from turning our, our revenge fantasies into reality. So then when we do feel harmed, and we do often feel truly harmed, we do have real experiences of, of enemies in the world or, or spiritually, um, the, these Psalms are given to us in order to bring all these acute, intense emotions before the very face of God so that we can be healed and rescued from the desire to, to, to turn an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a harm for a harm. And that harm might be towards another, or we might do harm against ourselves if we feel that God is giving us a raw deal or not taking care of our, us. We may self-sabotage as a way to get revenge against God himself. So the Psalms are there as a kind of rescue operation, both to name how we truly feel uh, to give edited language to our unedited emotions, but also to rescue us from these tendencies to want to harm ourselves or others around us. 
All right, David, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a short break. David Taylor is my guest. His book is called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. We'll take a very short break and be right back. to the show. So glad to have David Taylor as my guest. He's written a great book called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. Uh, David, I know in chapter 9 you talked about enemies and it seems that pops up quite a bit in Psalms. Deliver me, O God, from my enemies. And I would love for you to talk about your understanding of, of enemies and how the Bible teaches and how the Bible helps us understand who those enemies are. You know, like anger, enemies is one of those hard parts of the Psalms. Uh, it's the part that sometimes, again, gets removed from our worship music repertoire, mm-hmm. from our prayers, uh, you know, in, in worship or even personally. Uh, on the other hand, we may find ourselves indulging, uh, relishing unduly, inordinately this enemy language because we do feel that we want to give somebody what they're you know, what they're owed. Um, We want to exact revenge, and this enemy language uh, nurses these intemperate passions in us. But again, the Psalms provide this holy median space, uh, this holy virtuous space, where it gives us permission to reckon realistically with the world that we really live in, that we really live in a broken an often cruel world that is full of human and natural disasters. Enemies are sometimes uh, other human beings, other cities, other groups, other people groups. Enemies in the Psalms are sometimes death. Uh, Natural destructions are experienced as as enemies. A sickness can be experienced as an enemy. Anything that threatens life in the context of the Psalms can be named as an enemy. I think one of the things that I I try to communicate in the book is that we read this enemy language in the Psalms through Christological eyes, through the eyes of Jesus. And one of the surprising things when we look at the Gospels, when we look at Jesus's life and ministry that is defined from beginning to end by the Psalms themselves, is that Jesus doesn't deny us the right or the permission to name our enemies. He does. And he himself names enemies like Satan and his closest friends, which is, again, similar to the Psalms, or these other forces, principalities and powers, to use St. Paul's language. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he invites us and charges us to bless them and to pray for them and to love them. So it's this dual uh, charge, both to name, reckon with, to bless and pray for, that is fundamentally impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And of course, the Psalms do a great job talking about uh, the joy of life and and also the the pain of death. Psalm one sixteen says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His faithful ones." And there, of course, there's other many verses that talk about just singing a, a, a song, a brand new song to the Lord, worship the Lord, sing to Him. It's the it, the teaching is is all over in Psalms. You get a little bit of everything, don't you? You do, and I, I think that's why I, I titled the book uh, A Guide for Life, because everything that you have ever thought or felt can probably be found 
in the Psalms. John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. Martin Luther called it the little Bible. Tim Keller calls it the medicine chest of the heart. Everything that you have ever felt in your interior life and in your public life is played out somehow, some way in the Psalms. And I went through Hurricane Harvey a, a few years ago, and, and we did see death up close. We did feel the, the chaos waters swell around us. We did flee the city. Uh, and others were not so so lucky, and it's one of the things I write about in in the Psalms uh, related to, to, to death, and uh, and Psalms related to life, and to see that that the Lord is sovereign both over life; He is the one whose Spirit gives us life, and He is sovereign ultimately against all the forces of death, even if that means that His sovereignty is expressed in in the resurrection of the life that yet awaits us. So, David, I'm curious as to how your relationship goes with psalms. I mean, sometimes I will read a psalm, and I'll just kind of go through it, and the next time I'll read it, and I'll go, how did I miss this psalm? And the next time I go through it, I go, okay, uh, I'm memorizing this. I'm going to learn this word for word. You know, what is it like for you? Well, you know, as a habit of reading the psalms somewhat regularly, somewhat daily for the past 20 years, you do start to see things that you didn't on a first or second or fifth pass, and and they begin to delight you at a, at a new level, and, and I love that, or they begin to convict you at a new level, or you begin to see how Psalms are talking to each other across the aisles, as it were, how Psalm 3, 4, and 5 are, are the, the, the trilogy of morning and evening Psalms, and they echo Genesis 1 language of this God being present to us in our morning times and our evening times, and certainly in the watches of the night when we are most vulnerable. I'm, I'm preaching in a couple of weeks on Psalm 23, and at first I dreaded preaching on Psalm 23. It's the most familiar song. It's all white noise to people, but I sat with it. I attended to it. I did what the Psalms say I'm supposed to do, which is to meditate, which the Hebrew ver verb there is just to chew on it like a, a, a dog on a bone. And all of a sudden, the first verse popped out at me, and I realized— this first verse of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, was, as it were, the very heart of the gospel, um, both speaking over against the that which Adam and Eve chose to not believe, that the Lord was not their shepherd, that he would not provide for them, and so they chose to provide for themselves. And again, Jesus' ministry, in a sense, is playing out this true shepherd role. And I just was, I was not just ministered to at a deep, I was deeply convicted of all the ways in which I, in my own life, actually don't believe that the Lord is my shepherd. So I wanted to not just think about these things, but through the course of my day, say out loud in the places where I maybe feel tempted to not believe it, that the Lord, you, O oh Lord, are my shepherd, please be my shepherd this day. So a combination of things, but ultimately, and I write about this in the book, I need other people. And the Psalms know that we cannot do this faithful living, faithful praying by ourselves. So I'm, I'm reaching out for friends to say, hey, please help me in these places of my life to embrace at a deeper level, transformative level, the truth that the Lord is my shepherd. And I find myself uh, just loving the Lord more and more when I uh, spend more time in the Psalms. Even when you go through a difficult Psalm like uh, 88, and you realize mm. that, boy, I don't know if I would have wanted to have kept that in the in the Psalms, because the Psalm ends with no hope. 
And that's just so unlike um, most Psalms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that you discover in the Psalms, again, as, as Martin Luther, you know, calls it the little Bible, everything, all, all the basic, as it were, character traits of God are found here. And they're found in this, in this beautiful and very purposeful interrelation that, that in the same Psalm or a pair of Psalms, you encounter God as good shepherd and just judge, or as powerful God of angel armies and comforting God of rest of refuge. And again, I think our temptation is to home in on one thing about God. And yet the Psalms are bearing witness to this, this fullness of the character of God that would cause us to know and love him at a, at a deeper, a deeper, truer level. Okay, David, what about singing these Psalms? I mean, the musical element, um, what that adds and, and how it enriches our faith through praise. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is, and I have a chapter on poetry, is how the Psalms are themselves poetry and originate in an oral society, an oral tradition. And so to truly understand what a psalm means, you really have to say it out loud. And singing it is just this exponential way to to, to sound out or to resound the truth. And when you sing the psalms, you begin to perceive connections that you hadn't before. And some things may get lost in translation from the Hebrew poetry to English poetry, but I think we have really wonderful translations in, in many different Bible translations who really try to keep that poetic element. And you and you hear, for example, how in Psalm 8 or Psalm 19, words are talking to each other in very poetic ways, like alliterative ways that are, are helping us to see how something holds together or a meaning is brought together through two things that you hadn't imagined being together. And those are things that we discover only, I think, through uh, you know, singing, chanting, reading out loud. And so this is a, a tradition that the church has maintained for, for 2,000 years. And uh, I, I love discovering all kinds of ways in which musicians have made music to the Psalms and, uh, and I try to make it a habit of listening, listening to as many different styles and practices and traditions because I hear new things from them. Uh, David, thank you so much for doing the show and a uh, great, uh, great book. Congratulations on it. And I, I know well, that you. you have grown in your faith as a result. Now we in turn can do the same. Well, that would be my hope that certainly I would love for people to buy and read it. But really more more than that is that people would read and fall in love, love with the Psalms right. of that would make me so happy. Yeah, it's a good uh, good book to fall in love with. So thank you uh, for doing the show. David Taylor has been my guest. His book is called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. It's a very special day for me. I get to have a chance to talk to my dear, dear friend, Carrie Humphreys, 
Sr. He is here with me in studio. I first met Kerry when I was just a young lad, and he has been like a earthly father to me, and he has mentored me and cared about me and loved me and made sure after my stepfather died that I was one of those kids that didn't slip through the cracks. So we've been studying God's Word together for over 40 years, and we are... uh, just uh, the dearest of friends, and I love him, and he has got a remarkable life story. I haven't had to listen to a lot of sermons that he's given me because he hasn't given me many sermons. He's just lived a life, and I've watched it, and I've modeled, tried to model my life after his. So it is with great uh, pleasure that I get a chance to uh, have him in studio and have a, a Words of the Wise segment. He's got another plan that he wants to talk about as well, because when you're a man like him, you never stop thinking of ways to expand the kingdom of God. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. It's uh, I've been here once before, I think, and uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. I appreciate those kind words, and you and I both know that uh, we never would have crossed paths except for the sovereignty of God orchestrating our lives. Yeah, amen. It's been a blessing for both of us. And I'll also tell listeners, uh, Kerry was the chairman of the board here at University of Northwestern for seven years. So you're very familiar with the University of Northwestern and everything about this place. Great, uh, great time in in my life. And uh, I was on the search committee when uh, we went out and found Brother Allen. Yeah. So when we talk about a person's life, we start usually with... Um, you you married your beautiful bride, Margot, when you were in your 20s. You raised three boys. You adopted uh, a little brother through the Big Brother Association, uh, Jim Hallberg, who is yes. like a fourth son. Yes, indeed. And then um, uh, he uh, tragically passed away um, when he was in his early 30s. Yeah, actually late 20s, yeah, car yeah. accident. Yeah, and then uh, you have been involved in... Uh, ministries of all kinds, like prison ministry, which inspired me to go into prison ministry. All I did was observe what you were doing, and I thought, I want to be like him, because everything you do, I want to duplicate, just so you know. And so then you got involved in prison ministry, and then you, after a, a long career with Cargill, which is the largest privately held corporation in the world, you uh, retired and then spent the next year in the Ukraine. Tell our listeners about that. Yes, and and I should tell you, before I went to Ukraine, I taught in the business department here at Northwestern College. Fantastic. For one quarter. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Those lucky students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say this truly with, with humility. I've never had a plan in my life. I've uh, God has opened doors for me, and I've gone through them. After I retired from Cargill, I was at a navigator meeting in Colorado Springs, and a guy from the commission made a presentation that said, we're looking for actually several hundred people to go and live in the former Soviet Union for a year. And um, I looked at my wife, and we both agreed that uh, there was no reason for us not to go. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we signed up and went and lived in a city south of Kiev named Bela Serkov, which translates White Church. The city was founded in 1300. And we lived there for a year and um, probably got to meet and befriend and uh, and be invigorated by, by 100 people. So when we left, we said, uh, we're coming back. And they said, yeah, that's what all Americans say. Um, but we said, no, we'll be back next year. So I didn't go this past April because of the virus. 
what I had been the previous 25 years. God willing, when uh, flying becomes reasonable, I'll go back again. Mm -hmm. So when you think of your 25 years, which is unheard of, I mean, very few people return to the mission field to the same place 25 years in a row. You do have a truly remarkable story, which I would love for you to share with our listeners, because I know we've got business at hand I want to get to. But I also want, if you wouldn't mind talking about when you said that you were going to play the Jesus film in your apartment and that the children showed up and this one child showed up that you just didn't recognize from the building. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I might have to push the tail button. That's okay. Uh, Me too. (laughs) But we had a curriculum and, uh, I think there were 50 Christian organizations that formed the commission and, uh, they appointed a committee and they wrote a 200 page, uh, book and um but everybody had a different schedule and we got to bella circus and were told by the superintendent of school we couldn't go in um the public schools and that that was that was our whole purpose was Mm -hmm. to go in the public school and and uh, teach um morals and ethics was was our charge well we we i'm convinced today bill that uh, any of us could go live in any foreign country, if we show ourselves humble, live in a, uh average-type environment, and uh, and God will open doors for you to find. But anyhow, we'd been there half the year, and it had some success, remarkable success. Uh, superintendent of schools, I was the leader of 12 people. I was 65 years old. And the leader of, of the superintendent said, you can't come in the school. But uh, a couple of weeks later, a person called me and said, uh, the president of the local university would like to meet you. So I went, and um, he and I were about the same age. He he was steeped his whole background in communism. I was steeped my whole background in capitalism. But as we got to know each other, he said, would you consider coming and teaching economics at this university? And and I could have said, I, I'm sorry, sir, I came to teach morals and ethics and Christian principles, but I didn't. I grabbed the opportunity, and by the end of the year, um, we were into that university with a Bible study among professors, and, um, and and people heard of us. And so even though we couldn't immediately go into schools, we, we found new opportunities. Ter- my son, Terry, and his wife, Susan, came to visit us mid-year, and they brought us a copy of the Jesus film, uh, Campus Crusade's uh, program on the life, uh, film on the life of Jesus. And so um, we put a, um, a sheet of paper in the elevator. We were living on the eighth floor of a very typical communist-built apartment house. We put a sheet of paper in the elevator saying, next week we're going to show a colored video in our flat of the life of Jesus. We can accommodate 20 people. Sign up uh, if you'd like to come. Well, there was a woman who worked the building as a janitor, and her job every day was to scoop up all the trash that would come down a common chute into the basement, scoop it into five-gallon cans and put it outside for the trucks to pick up probably the worst job you can think of in the entire Soviet Union. 
And and people told us she was very shy. She'd been beaten by a drunken husband. But she was similar size of my wife. And so Margot had extra sweaters. And she would never turn down uh, leftover bread or food or anything of value. So gradually we got to be able to say to her, Good morning, Tanya. Dobri Dan, Tanya. And she would look up and say, Dobri Dan to us. Well, when we hung up the sheet to show this Jesus film, uh, at 7 o'clock at night, doorbell rings, and here is a 9-10-year-old girl, dressed to the nines, uh, looking it up with big eyes, and we said, hello, hello. Uh, and she said, uh, my name is Natasha. And we said, you've come for the film. And she said, yes. We had translators, the boy and girl translators, and we said, Natasha, we've lived in this uh, building now for six months. We know every person in the building. We haven't met you. Uh, you don't live in the building. No, I don't. Where do you live? But one kilometer away. So we didn't grill her. We said, come in, come in. Uh, she was the first one to arrive. And 19 more arrived, and they watched the film. Uh, she sat there, wrapped at seeing in color, spoken in Russian, uh, the story of the life of Jesus. So at the end, we said, Natasha, we have two young young girls, women on our team. They have a little girl Bible study that meets on Saturday. Would you be interested in coming? And she said, oh, I will. They'll, they'll come pick you up and take you. Give us your, your address. So they would come two, three weeks later and say, oh, this wonderful little girl, she's so attentive and so eager to learn. Well, finally the light turned on. She's Tanya's daughter. Wow. <laughs> Tanya, too shy to uh, come herself, thinking I'm, I'm the janitor. It would be inappropriate for me to go to their flat. But I want my little girl to learn about Jesus. So we, it became <clears throat> life lifetime relationship with us. I could tell you the one-hour version, but today Natasha has a 10-year-old girl of her own. Wow. And uh, a, a good, hard-working husband. And her 10-year-old... Well, we sent Natasha to Svetlana, who was an English teacher, and she stuck with her because we were only there annually for a couple of weeks. Svetlana became her aunt and uh, guided her and directed her. So now we see third generation. Tanya is dead, but Natasha is 30-ish. And Eve, her little daughter, uh, since we lived there for a year and we've been back 25 years, the town is 300,000 people, but we know everybody in town. <laughs> yeah. We know the music teacher who right. has, owns the music school, and Eve has taken music lessons there, and so... You sent Eve to the music school, didn't you? You you helped her with lessons and all that. Oh yeah, yeah, of and, course. And yep. English lessons and music lessons, and yeah. helped her get a, a real advantage yeah. in life. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, we'll take a little break. Um, Carrie Humphrey, senior, is my guest. Words of the wise, and you're not going to get wiser words than these. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have Carrie Humphreys, Sr. with me in the studio. We're 
Talking about words of the wise, Gary has been a follower of Jesus for decades and decades and decades, and you have uh, a really wonderful um, idea that I want to talk to you about. But I also, before you tell the idea, I want you to tell our audience what you and your wife did when you returned from uh, your mission trip of one year in in Ukraine. When we came back from Ukraine, um, Margot and I had both grown up in a um, same denomination church, married in the same denomination, and then then we took about a 10-year vacation and had no church involvement. Uh, then Cargill moved us to Memphis, and we joined a church in Memphis, not really looking for a church, but looking for a good boys' school. And they they had a excellent boys' school. We joined the church, and several people came alongside of us at the age of 30 and led us to Christ, mm. changed our lives, changed our direction. So we moved from Memphis to New York, back to Minneapolis, uh, joined a local church in Edina, switched to another church in Edina, and we were active uh, on on the elder boards and uh, teaching Sunday school. And, uh, and then we had a one-year respite uh, living in Ukraine. When we came back, we didn't have a particular plan, but we said, let's look for more of an inner-city church. And so we visited a half a dozen, and an African-American friend said, uh, I've got a church for you to try, uh, Pilgrim Baptist Church in St. Paul, the oldest African-American church in the state of Minnesota. So we, uh, with no motive, no intention other than to broaden our experience, we went and became members of Pilgrim Baptist Church and stayed there for almost 15 years and then uh, and taught Sunday school there and made friends with uh, dozens of people. And we're still friends with many of them today. Ten years ago, uh, we moved to a Minneapolis church, North Minneapolis church, um, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, and we've been there for 10 years. And I'm still teaching Sunday school. And in the last three months, we've been teaching it via conference call. Yeah. Uh, a, a lifetime experience, and we're so thankful that we did that <clears throat> because we both grew up during Jim Crow segregation in the South, and I went to the University of Virginia, founded by Thomas Jefferson, uh, which was totally segregated uh, when I graduated in 1954. Different experience for us, but it, it brings me to recommend that there be a two-way street, that some people from white churches go to an African-American church and some people from African-American churches try going to a white church. Mm -hmm. uh, don't make a lifetime commitment. I, we didn't ourselves, but, uh, but we've been doing it now for 25 years and uh, we're not likely to change. Mm -hmm. So the idea, Kerry, is with so much divide in our country and so much racial tension, and I've been hearing about racial reconciliation since high school, but the real question is, what is anyone doing about it except talking about it? Whereas you and Margot, your wife, you joined an all-black church and you invested in that church and you taught Sunday school. And, you know, on any given Saturday night at your house, you might have five African-American couples over for dinner. Yeah. So you talk about racial reconciliation. There's, there's a plan. It's a great question. And what I envision in my plan is that, uh, that we get black and white churches, pastors, 
ministers and priests to recommend that um, some members of their church uh, try attending, joining with a three-year commitment and, and seeing what they discover. I, I put down on my one-sheet one uh, plan, I'd like to see 100,000 people, black and white, make a three-year commitment to join and participate in a church of different color. I say that the plan is unique and it requires no funding, not one nickel, no government approval, not even a majority vote, just open-minded Christian individuals led by God's sovereignty. Obviously now, the approval of church priests, pastors, ministers can advance this plan where it becomes a movement instead of a clever idea. But your point, Bill, uh, it's time has come. I, I think Martin Luther King was quoted as saying, 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in the churches in, in the United States. And uh, I understand that. But, but I think racial reconciliation, uh, goodness sakes, we are all God's children. Uh, why shouldn't we be racially reconciling while we worship together and break bread together? Kerry, mm-hmm. you uh, talked about uh, some of the, the positives that have been uh, the outcome of you and Margot being in an uh, African-American church for 25 years. Can I share some of these? Please. How about some of the new friendships you've made? They've been spectacular, haven't they? They've been absolutely spectacular. I, I won't name people, but people will know whom I'm talking about. Seven, eight years ago, uh, a voice on the telephone said, Hi, Carrie, my name is Selwyn Vickers. I'm moving to Minneapolis. Joe Smith, I can't remember the name, said, If I called you, you could recommend a church for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I say to myself, I know Joe knows I go to an African-American church. So I say to this voice on the phone, are you African-American? And he says, I have been since I was born. <laughs> and, and so I said, What's, what brings you to Minneapolis? And he said, well, the University of Minnesota has hired me as um, a chief of surgery. He's going to superintend 80 surgeons. At the uh, University of Minnesota. At the University school. of Minnesota. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think... One of the 80 was African-American at the time. But some Asians, some Indians, but still predominantly a group of white people. They hired him as chief of surgery. And he was here six or seven years, came from the University of Alabama, a godly man. He could preach if you needed a preacher. He knows the scripture, and he's a family man with uh, godly children. but um, And now he's a lifelong friend of yours. He's a lifelong friend of mine, and after seven years here, the University of Alabama hired him back as dean of their whole medical system. I understand that's a good job. Yeah, and, yeah. and there are others, others whose names uh, many Apollitans would know, mm-hmm. but um, others whom you wouldn't know who have been uh, zealous attenders of our on Friday morning Bible study, and uh, mm-hmm. and how much has it helped uh, um, expand your understanding? I mean, y- you have uh, so many friends, and you have so many people that that come to you for counsel and wisdom and Bible study. 
but you've got a whole new group of men and women that have come into your presence that you've had a chance to um, just expand your own understanding of what's going on in their world. Yeah, I, I would say uh, we, we are blessed. We are blessed to know uh, Ukrainians, and we are blessed to know African Americans, and and we we knew some African Americans long before we did this. And as you know, I had a long time relationship with a guy named Ted Jefferson, who was an ex-offender who had actually killed another man uh, in a drunken brawl. Who we became locked at the hip, uh, and he had become a born-again Christian and and actually spoke in my Edina church and gave an altar call, and my son Kerry came forward when he was 15 or 16 years old. But but I was saying, what I've learned is I don't see any difference. I, I don't like the expression colorblind, uh, but I don't see any difference in the needs of my white friends and my African-American friends. We all want essentially the same thing. We want our children to grow up with opportunity. We want them to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God and to see their children. And uh, and I've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And uh, I can't, I, there are about 30 of us right now. And I can't say that every single one of those are walking with the Lord to the extent that I would like to see. But uh, we love them and we are examples for them. And we are examples for the people that we meet in our church, and they are examples for us. And we we learn from them as much as they learn from us. So, Carrie, if we think about this, it's really maybe one person per family from every three churches in the U.S. When I when I first went to Pilgrim, uh, a woman uh, came to me, uh, very friendly, with a big smile, and said. Uh, Brother Kerry, could I ask you a personal question? Come here, sure you can ask me a question. She said, how come you're here? And I said, come here, I read in Revelation that in heaven there are going to be all races, all creeds, all colors. I'm just practicing for what it's going to be like in heaven. <laughs> she said, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah. Uh, and you had some opposition when you first started, yeah, and now yeah, those have yeah. all come one, around as one, well. One or two people have, uh, and, and, and there's still one or two people that are uncomfortable around me. Sure. Uh, if I'm sitting in the pew and there's a choice of sitting, they might sit in the pew behind me. Or the, but, um, but that's probably true in my Adina church also, that yeah. uh, there were people that, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. And we never... Uh, God never has a slow down, does he? I mean, no. I don't think we've told our listening audience your age, but um, you go ahead. Yeah. If you'd like to share your age. Oh, oh, I, I, I miss my, my hearing. Yeah, I'm closer to 91 than 90. I'll be 91 in... Uh, October. October the 17th. And, yeah. uh, and oddly, I have my oldest granddaughter was born on my birthday, and I have a daughter-in-law who was born on my birthday. Mm-hmm. So we have three people to celebrate the same same day. So somebody said a long time ago, clever expression, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> but I count my blessings, and uh, God has dealt with me very gently. My wife is, is in reasonable health. She is blind, but uh, uh, she is blind, but she can see the Lord very clearly, for which we 
are thankful. Yeah, and she spent her whole life uh, studying and memorizing Scripture, so yeah. it's all in her heart right now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a great time to be with you, and I am profoundly uh, grateful for the way you have shaped my life and the impact you've had on me and the way you have loved me, and I uh, I send you a, a card on Father's Day because... I know you do. Yeah. I know you do. It. Carrie, thank you so much for sharing this vision at age almost 91. This is uh, inspiring to me, and I love this, and I love you, and I just am so grateful that you could be with me here today in the studio. Thank you so very much, Bill. Yep. You're a special person in our family and in our hearts. Thank you so much. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. You know that means time to ring the bell. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.